Father, I don't know um, how each person this morning is doing. I uh, know there are people in the room who are mourning. I know there are people in the room who are tired, weary. I know there are people in the room who are busy. Uh, God, I know there are people in the room who are discouraged right now, struggling to believe in you. Uh, God, I'm sure there's people in the room who are just enjoying your blessings and they're encouraged and we praise you for that. But God, no matter where we are this morning, would your spirit meet us right where we need to be met? And God, would your word speak to each of us in such a way that that right here, right now, Lord, we would fall more in love with you. Right now, we would rely on you more. That right now, maybe there's some things inside of us that, where we need to feel some conviction and some humility. And Lord, would you work on that in our hearts right now? But God, regardless of where we are, would you just draw us into worship? And in just in these next few minutes, help us, Lord, just have our gaze on you. Lord, I pray for me as I preach from your word that, Lord, help me to stick to it, to your word, nothing else. We love you, God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question I want to start with. (laughs) Uh, Can you be a Christian and vote for the Democratic nominee for president instead of President Trump? (laughs) Temperature just went up. All right. Do Christians have to be Republicans? Do Christians have to be Democrats? Uh, There are people on both sides who would say that their party is more Christian than the other. Can a Christian consume alcohol? Uh, Can you be a Christian and be gay? Can you be a Christian and believe that marriage is exclusively between a a man and a woman, a husband and a wife? Can you be rich, like really rich, like drive real nice cars, huge house, and be a Christian at the same time? There there are some who would say no. There are some who would say of course. Can you be really poor and be a Christian? Some would say that Poverty comes from a lack of wisdom or a lack of faith. Can you be a Christian and not believe or submit to everything in the Bible or must you as a Christian believe in the inerrancy of the entire Bible? Do you have to believe that? If you were to poll all of Christendom with these questions, there would be passionate Disagreement. I'm sure you're aware of that. There are Christians who say, I've heard it, that it is demonic not to support our current president. And there are Christians who say, I've heard it, that it's the epitome of hypocrisy to support him. Which one is it? 
on all the issues I just raised, you will find hyper-polarized opinions, complete with assassination of character and motive, if you don't agree. And you will find people also that don't draw hard lines at all. So you have this big circle, okay? And inside this big circle are all of the people who would identify themselves as Christian. But within that circle are all kinds of different opinions and beliefs about what it means to be a Christian. There are all kinds of groups and factions and denominations and schisms and all of these things. And many of those different groups accuse the other groups of not being Christian. And they see their group as the pure group in the circle. And this isn't just true for the church. If you read through the Bible, if you were to look back at the nation of Israel in our, in our Old Testament, you would see the same thing. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be jumping into our next passage in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, we're going verse by verse through Luke. And in these uh, Sundays before Christmas, right, the Sundays of Advent, we're studying Luke 1 and 2, which record the, the events around the birth of Jesus. So we're going to get to our next one. And, and the next passage in Luke records this interaction between Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, and her relative Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And during this interaction, Mary has this moment where she sings to God. She just breaks out in song. And in this song, which is traditionally referred to as the Magnificat, Mary proclaims how Jesus, as the Messiah, the, 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 the child in her womb, is going to show mercy to some, and to others, he's actually going to be their downfall. See, hang with me here. Jesus did not come to be the Messiah for everyone. Jesus did not come to be the Messiah for all who claim to be in this circle we call Christian. No, actually, the, the Bible has always observed that, yes, there is this big circle of people who claim to belong to God. And then there's this smaller circle of people that the Bible refers to as the remnant, the true people of God. See, not everyone who claims to be in the big circle is truly a part of the remnant. Like, yes, there, there are some parameters when it comes to who is of God and, and who's not. And, and Mary's song is going to help us to understand what those parameters are and what it means to be a part of the, the remnant. And so, and here's what we're going to discover this morning. The difference between the remnant and the rest of this circle of people who claim to be of God is that the remnant fear God above all else. Now, this word fear in Scripture, it's a, it's a different word. Uh, it, it literally means that it's reverent, humble obedience to God. It's this idea of, God, you're so big and glorious and almighty, and I'm none of those things. And so, God, I, 
I humbly submit to you. I trust you. I submit my life to you because I recognize you're sovereign and you control all things and you can affect my life in whatever way that you want. So I fear you above everything else. That's what fear in the Bible means. And so before, before we continue, I just want to say to those of you here who maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian or you're still exploring what you believe about Jesus, pollsters in America have observed that it's exactly this kind of inconsistency within the church that I'm talking about that is causing so many people to be skeptical about the church. And so here's my hope for you this morning is that I hope that I can present to you from God's word a a pure and compelling picture of what it means to worship and follow Jesus and what it looks like when that gets distorted. Because there are a lot of distortions out there. All right, so let's, let's jump to our text and we'll let it guide us. We're gonna read uh, Luke chapter one. It's been read for us already and we're gonna read it again. Luke chapter one, verses 39 to 56. It says, in those days, Mary arose and, and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth is her relative. Mary has just conceived of the Holy Spirit, so Jesus is in her womb. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, John the Baptist, in her womb, leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit, she breaks out in song. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months returned to her home. There are two parts of this text. I want to break it into two different pieces. You have the scene where Mary visits Elizabeth, and then you have the song that Mary sings. And so Mary makes her way to Elizabeth's home, and in this clip that we get when Mary arrives, we get a picture of what the remnant looks like. Let me describe this to you because the attitude and the conduct of the remnant is vastly different than those who claim they belong to God but are not of the remnant. 
Right? There are three characteristics of the remnant that I think we see displayed in Mary and Elizabeth here. The first characteristic is humility. Picture the scene. Mary arrives, and in her womb is the Son of God in the form of an embryo. And John, the Baptist, who is six months in the womb of Elizabeth, does what God called him to do. He announces the arrival of the Messiah through leaping with joy. And Elizabeth receives that prophetic announcement, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? The Son of God, the Messiah that her people have been waiting for for 400 years, was in her house. And the humility of Elizabeth is so apparent. In verse 43, she's, she's overcome by the fact that she gets the privilege of being a part of this moment. And Mary has the same kind of humility in verse 48 when she talks about her humble estate. Why is this happening to me? Like, what have I done to be a part of this? We also see it in Mary in verse 47 when she calls this child in her womb her savior. She's in touch with her need for salvation. So one thing is certain, neither Mary nor Elizabeth felt entitled to such blessing and favor from God. They feared God. And this is a key characteristic of the remnant. Humble gratitude towards God, not proud entitlement. Second characteristic we see is submission. Right? It's common for us today to refer to God or to Jesus as Lord. You pray, you say the word Lord a lot, but here in the text, we can't let what Elizabeth says in verse 43 to go over our heads because she calls this child in Mary's womb her Lord. She's making a confession that Jesus is her God. Jesus is her Messiah. He is her King. And Mary does the same thing in our text from last week in verse 38. If you remember, when Mary was with the angel and Mary said, I am your servant, May it be to me according to your word. God, I submit to your will. I sit under your word. I don't question it. So the remnant is comprised of those who submit to and fear God as king. And they do not fear anyone else or look to anyone else as king. And the third and last characteristic we see in this text is joy. The scene with Elizabeth and Mary and John the Baptist leaping in the womb, it's filled with joy. Their hearts are filled with gladness that God is moving in their midst. And we just read of Mary's joy in the beginning of her song when she says, my soul, it magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on my humble estate. Behold, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. See, the remnant finds their joy in Christ. They do not look to anything else in the world for that joy. These three characteristics are what describe the remnant. Humility, submission, and joy. When you look at the people of God, when you look at the church, when you look at Christians, when you look at people who claim the name of Jesus, 
These three characteristics ought to be obvious. Humility, submission, and joy. As we look deeper into Mary's song, we're gonna see how these three characteristics are produced in us from fearing God above all else. Because that is the mark of the true church, a true Christian, the remnant, the fear of God. And the question that we need to ask ourselves as we study this song is, do I fear God or do I fear other things? Does my life reflect the characteristics of the remnant or have I distorted what it means to be a Christian as well? So let's look deeper at Mary's song. We read the opening verses of the song and observed Mary's her humility and her submission and her joy. But through the rest of the song, verses 50 to 54, we're going to see the difference between the remnant and the, and the rest of the circle. Verses 50 and 54, those two give us a definition of the remnant. And verses 51 to 53 will explain the difference. So let's start with verses 50 and 54. Because here we, we, are, we get a few identifying statements of those whom Jesus has come to be the Messiah. Who is this remnant? So look at verse 54. Let's start there. Verse 54 says this. He has helped his servant Israel. So when it says he has, she is talking about Jesus in her womb. And you're like, well, that's a past tense. That doesn't make any sense. This is what we call a, a prophetic past tense. She is talking about what Jesus is going to do as if it's already happened, right? He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Is that all of verse 54? Um, let's do verse 55 too. I didn't put it on the screen, my fault. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. All right, so let me make this plain for everyone. As you read the Bible, you have two groups of people, God's people and the rest of the world, okay? God's people belong to God, they worship God. The rest of the world, they do not worship God. In the Old Testament, God chose a nation to be his people. That was Israel. Abraham is the father of Israel. All of Israel traces their roots back to Abraham. And out of this nation comes the Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus makes a way for all people among all nations to become a part of God's people, of the people of God. All right? Paul explains this to us in the book of Galatians, that when you place your faith in Jesus, what happens is you become attached to Jesus. You're in unity with Jesus. Jesus is an offspring of Abraham, and Galatians tells us that when you come, become attached to Jesus, you become an offspring of Abraham. And so now in the New Testament, this group of people who are the people of God, it's not just a nation anymore. No, it's all people from all nations in all time who trust in Jesus as their savior. This is what we call the church. The church is comprised of all people who trust in Jesus 
and are now joined in as the people of God. So in verse 54 and 55, when Mary says that her child Jesus will help Israel, will help Abraham, and also his offspring forever, she doesn't just have Old Testament Israel in mind, she's also referring to the church in the future. In other words, you are included in this. So when we talk about the remnant, we are talking about everyone who is truly a part of God's people from Israel in the Old Testament all the way into the church. But that's still a really big circle, okay? So if we go to verse 50, we're gonna narrow that circle even more. Look at what verse 50 says. It says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, from Old Testament times all the way into New Testament times to today. His mercy is for those who fear him. That's a very important statement. The mercy of Jesus will be for those who fear God, not everyone. His mercy isn't for those who have the right genealogy. That's not the case. His mercy is not for those who attend church. His mercy is not for those who claim something. His mercy is for those who fear God. And in the Old Testament, these people who actually feared God and trusted in him, these people were referred to as the remnant. Uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22, as actually Paul quotes and Romans 9, 27 says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, Israel's a big circle, there's a lot of people included in the nation of Israel, only a remnant of them will be saved. So you have people who claim to be the people of God, yet they do not fear God, and then you have people who fear God. And in verses 51 to 53, Mary sings about what her child, Jesus, will do for the remnant, for those who fear God. And she's going to give us three examples of what it looks like to fear God and what it looks like to to not fear God. The true difference between the remnant and the rest of the circle. Three of those, and we're going to work through those three. So here's number one. This comes from verse 51. The remnant trust in Jesus as its savior. Look at verse 51. It says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now, when you study the life of Jesus, you'll notice that Jesus went after the proud all the time. Yet he didn't really go after the world when it came to their pride. He went after those who claimed to be in the big circle. He went after those who took pride in their religion. And Mary says that Jesus will scatter the proud and show himself to be strong. See, a key distinction of those in the big circle who are not of the remnant is that they are arrogant and they trust in themselves. While those who are part of the remnant, as displayed to us by Mary and Elizabeth, are humble and trust in Jesus. 
When you look at the church today, there is a lot of pride. Uh, There are a lot of people who like to puff up their chests and display their righteousness so that the world can see it, much like the Pharisees did. And this is both on the right and the left, both conservatives and liberals. On one hand, there's a huge portion of the church that is most loud about their morality. They're the ones who champion marriage. They're the ones who champion biblical sexuality. They're the ones who preach family values and expect those who've never heard the gospel to abide by all of that. And although we may agree with many of those values, we hear way more about their righteousness than their savior. It's the same on the left. They champion inclusion and love and diversity and they preach how the other side is archaic and hateful and yet they and their righteousness are the enlightened ones. And although some of their causes we need to listen to, you don't hear much about their savior. See, the remnant as displayed by Mary and Elizabeth is marked by humility. They don't say, look at my righteousness, look at my values, look at how much more enlightened I am than those people. They say, look at my Savior. See, the proud scatter at the preaching of the true gospel of Jesus because the true gospel of Jesus says, you've all missed the mark. And Jesus has come to give of himself on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sin. This is how he will truly help Israel and the church. This is how he will show his mercy and his strength by saving us from our sin. But if you want to receive his mercy, you must fear him. You must confess that you're not righteous. You're not enlightened. You're not strong. You are a sinner in need of a savior who will show his strength with his arm and conquer your sins for you. See, if you ever see those who claim to be Christians, right, that that they're in the big circle and they point and speak of their own righteousness and their own causes, how they are better than other people, as we see many do, whenever you see them push morality on the world, but not gospel, whenever you see them speak of values before they ever speak of a savior, I don't think you're dealing with the remnant. God says to Israel in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, he says, I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. That's what the remnant looks like, humble and lowly. Number two, the remnant Trust in Jesus as its king. Verse 52 says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You know, all through the Bible, I'm talking cover to cover, God tells his people that one day he will make all things new and establish his kingdom. He told Israel that he was their true king and one day the Messiah would come and establish this kingdom. He tells us as the church that we are strangers and exiles on this, in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven 
And one day Christ will return and set up his kingdom where we will live forever. And Jesus will be the perfect ruler over that kingdom. And from cover to cover in the Bible, the people of God are told to wait for that. Wait for your king to come. No human can be this king. Only Jesus can be this king. And we have to wait for him. But for many in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and for many in the church, we don't want to wait. We want to try and establish this kingdom now through worldly institutions and worldly politics. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was established under the rule of God's word. All right, but the people of Israel decided they did not want to be ruled by God's word. They wanted to be ruled by a worldly king like the rest of the nations. Go read the beginning of 1 Samuel. Here's your homework. Israel wanted a king who would be tall and handsome, who would be strong, who would stand up to Israel's enemies and adversaries, who would fight their battles, who would ensure their liberty, the kind who punches back. That's what Israel wanted. And when one of Israel's prophets, Samuel, warned Israel about this, about putting a human king over themselves, they didn't listen. And look at what God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. It says this, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. If you look at the church today, sometimes it's hard to know where the politics starts and where it stops. How come all of a sudden the word evangelical is now a voting block where endorsements are given? Why do we have leaders in the church, assassinating the character of other people in the church because they don't agree politically? Why is it that Christians, a part of one political party, accuse Christians who lean toward another party of not being Christian? Why is my newsfeed filled with Christians who have a fire in their belly about politics and worldly kings and that's it? As one member of President Trump's Evangelical Advisory Council said about the 2016 election, this election is not a battle between Republicans and Democrats. It's a battle between good and evil, light and darkness, righteousness and unrighteousness. What? That's absurdity. This is a pastor saying this. Why are we attaching apocalyptic and religious language to an American election? It's almost as if we've forgotten that we're waiting for our true king to come back. And we decided to look to worldly kings now to fight our battles and protect us. We don't fear God, we fear a political party. And this is not just the right, it's the left. They're just as guilty when it comes to looking to worldly leaders to bring hope and change. Brothers and sisters, I know I'm stepping on toes here, but the remnant makes no political alliance. And many of us need to check our hearts on this one, especially in the year we're about to go into. We have a king. He has come to save us. He will return to make all things new, and he will bring down the mighty from their throne. 
That doesn't mean we don't engage politically, but as Mary and Elizabeth displayed for us, in every part of our lives, we submit in all things to our true king. We fear Jesus. Our trust is in Jesus, in Jesus alone. It's not in a political party or a ruler. No matter what an earthly king says, no matter what the culture says, no matter if persecution is coming, no matter if other Christians tell us to do otherwise, we wait for our king to return and our hope is in him and him alone. And number three, the remnant trust in Jesus as its portion. Verse 53, it says he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. What has been the theme for the remnant so far, right? I mean, the remnant looks to Jesus as its savior, not themselves. The remnant looks to Jesus as its king, not worldly kings. And so here, the remnant looks to Jesus to satisfy their souls and not money or material things. See, as you read the scripture, both Old and New Testaments, We see a consistent message when it comes to our money. That message is not that we shouldn't have it. It's not that we shouldn't earn it. It's that we should hold on to it loosely and not look to it to satisfy or bring joy to our souls. See, when we look to our money and possessions to be our portion, to be our joy, then we fear money or we fear the lack of money and not God. Look at what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 6. He said this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It is a good thing for those who fear God to have money. That's a good thing because they won't look to that money to satisfy their souls. They'll invest that in whatever God tells them to invest it in. The scripture never speaks of money as a reward for faithfulness. It always speaks of money as something God entrusts to you. We have a lot of people in this big circle who claim to be Christian, but how many of us fear money or lack of money over God? Because at the end of the day, those who look to money to be their portion will walk away empty. And those who look to Jesus to be their portion will be filled for eternity. There's abundant joy in putting everything on the table like Mary and Elizabeth did and allow our souls to enjoy being in the center of God's will. But our fear of money will hold us back from that. This this is the remnant of God. They trust in Jesus as their savior, not their morality. They trust in Jesus as their king, not worldly kings. They trust in Jesus as their portion, not their money. These three idols were a problem for Israel all over the Old Testament if you study it. And if I can be honest, I think they are a problem for American evangelicalism. 
We at Grace Hill, we would call ourselves evangelicals. Historically, to be an evangelical means to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and to be serious about the Great Commission and sharing the gospel with those who are lost. But that word has been hijacked now, and I believe that American evangelicalism has three idols that need to get taken out back. Moral pride, politics, and money. And so as an, as an evangelical church, as we are, instead of the pointing the finger, let's look to ourselves. Where might some of these idols have a hold of our heart? Jesus has come. He's going to scatter the proud. He's going to bring the mighty down from their thrones. He is going to send the rich away empty. But here's the good news about the remnant. It's not an exclusive club. It's open to anyone who would humble themselves before God, receive his grace, and submit to his word. Grace Hill, let's be that remnant here in Northern Virginia and Herndon. Let's display the glory of Christ and how he is trustworthy by truly trusting and fearing him and nothing else. Let's be a humble church that doesn't flaunt our righteousness, but points all who will listen to the righteousness of Jesus. Let's be a church that puts all of our hope in the king of kings in heaven who is going to return and not on earthly kings or political systems or parties. Let's be a church that looks to Jesus for our joy, not the things of the world. If we want people to come to Christ in this town, then this town needs a remnant. And I pray that at Grace Hill, we could be a part of that remnant. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I know that we touched on some topics, God, that can be tense in our culture. We touched on some idols that might have deep roots in some of our hearts. But God, I just pray that as a church, we would exalt you, King Jesus, above all. So God, protect us from our pride. Protect us from thoughts of feeling like we're better than other people. Protect us, Lord, for thinking that our security lies in our morality. Humble us, God. Lord, help us to, to look to Jesus and see that it's only through his life and his death, and his resurrection, that we are made right with you. Help us to have the attitude of Mary and Elizabeth, the kind of humility that just is so thankful that you would save us. God, help us in this political climate that we're in as a country. It's so divided, it's so tense, there's so many opinions. Lord, help us to know how to engage in the politics of our country faithfully. Not putting our hope in any party or king, but putting our hope solely in you. Protect our hearts from putting our hope in one party or one person. And God, lastly, I just wanna pray that you would protect us from looking to the things of this world for our joy. It's so tempting to do that. 
so tempting to think that the more money we have or the more possessions we have or the more success we experience, the happier we'll be. And Lord, you tell us that if that's where we put our hope and if that's where we try to find our joy, we will be left empty. Lord, help us to be satisfied with being filled with Christ like Mary and Elizabeth were as they just leaped for joy because of what you were doing in their lives. Lord, could we taste that as a church? So God, I just pray you would use us as a remnant here in Northern Virginia to reach people, deal with our hearts, God. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.